Hey, we're back again with uh, Fred Sanders. I hope you caught last week's episode as we were beginning to speak about the Trinity. Uh, we covered a lot of ground, uh, everything from the uh, gang fighting Mickey Cruz uh, up to the highest heights of heaven where uh, God exists in uh, this perfect triune uh, entity of uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Fred's the author of the, the Deep Things of God. Uh, I want to recommend this to you immediately. Uh, go to Amazon or uh, probably the best way to do it or one of your ways. You, whatever you buy a book, go, go, go get this thing and uh, you'll be challenged and encouraged and it's a worshipful experience as well. Fred, thanks for being with us again. Uh, this Glad week. to be here. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, you tie in the Trinity and this is, I have several books on the Trinity and I've never seen this before. You tie in the Trinity with the gospel. What led you to that? Why? And can you explain how that works? The God and the Trinity and the gospel. Yeah. So, I mean, just autobiographically, um, how I, I got to this is um, I, I had a Christian upbringing um, in a, in a uh, Pentecostal church. And um, I would say I walked away from that. And um, it was when I was 15 or 16, there was a youth group revival in a little Methodist church uh, that a lot of my friends went to. And this was in Western Kentucky. And um, uh, I, that's when I really, I think, became a Christian. Um, and I started reading the Bible for myself. I actually, the, I had a, a sin and guilt problem that I worked out with God there that, that, you know, central to my conversion. But the main way I could tell that I um, was saved is uh, I just had an immense hunger for the word of God. I just couldn't get enough uh, hmm. of scripture. I was like staying up late into the night, uh, just, just reading the Bible, just couldn't, couldn't get enough of it. Um, and uh, that's when I later I would realize, oh, then I must have been born again because that's like that's the new man, that's regeneration that desires uh, the word of God in that way. But as I was doing this reading on my own without a lot of guidance or teaching, um, I started seeing all over uh, the New Testament, especially especially Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but it really is all over the place um, that this salvation that that God had brought was the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You know, think about Ephesians 1, um, blessed be God who has um, uh, predestined us to adoption um, and given us redemption in his Son and sealed us with the Holy Spirit. You get this like half a chapter long exposition of what salvation is. And when Paul really goes deep with it, he inevitably ends up talking about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So, I mean, I was 16 and I didn't have much guidance or teaching. I just began to assemble in my mind this idea that God was, you know, like, if this is going to work, if this salvation I'm reading about is going to work, God's got to be like the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I, I actually for a moment thought, oh, no, I've invented a heresy. And like, <laughs> I'm the only person who believes this. And I just made it up in my, you know, I'm a teenager in my room in Kentucky. And I just made up this thing that only I believe. Um, then, of course, I started reading around a little bit more, read a little J.I. Packer, read a little C.S. Lewis read a few books that were actually already on my shelf from my, from my childhood and uh, began to see it all over the place. Um, so I, I really came to the doctrine of the Trinity, um, not as like a top down, get your doctrine of God straight. And now let's move on to the next doctrine in the logical order of Christian systematic theology. Um, but I really got to it through salvation and sort of rose up to the level of being able to say the God behind the gospel must be, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm. So I kind of have the best of both worlds. I have pride of ownership and that I sort of created the doctrine of the Trinity myself, though it was a really, you know, it was a really <laughs> bad version of it. It wasn't great, it wasn't deep. Um, uh, but I've also got the um, 
ability to say, hey, this is, this is not some private thing I invented. Uh, this is the open secret of the Christian doctrine of God. This is what, um, just to speak in terms of sort of interdenominational or ecumenical fellowship, this is what all the Christians believe, right? I can, I can read Lutherans and Pentecostals and Presbyterians and Roman Catholics, and this is a point of great and deep agreement um, and non-divergence is on the character of God. Yeah. That's great. That's good. Um, what you just said, there are two questions in my mind. I'm not trying to figure out what you want to go first. Let's, let's stick on the God and the gospel. Um, what, um, what parts do each of the persons of the Trinity play in, in the gospel? Or do they just kind of all, you know, I wonder if we picture like, since they're a Trinity, they're one. So Jesus came to earth but it was sort of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and but but the Son's still up in heaven, or you know they're kind of split or they're together. Like, uh, do do they have different roles, um, or is it just sort of they they, they can yeah, you know you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's a unity here and a Trinity to kind of work with, right? There's um, yeah. somehow the the external works of God are all undivided. So any anything God does. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do, okay. um, and so you can you can look at any of those things and say that the fullness of deity is behind this divine action, um, and yet within that um, they they operate the Father, Son, and Spirit operate towards us in a way that's consistent with who they eternally are. So there's a there's an order of existence within the Trinity um, that is manifested in the works of God, and just like to pick a hard one. Um, only the Son is incarnate, right? right? The Father's not incarnate. The Spirit's not incarnate. And so only the Son is, uh, takes on human nature, and only the Son experiences death personally as the Son. Hmm. Otherwise, you'd have to say things like the Father is crucified, and that's obviously a heresy, as, as everyone immediately recognizes. The thing is, though, the incarnation itself is the work of the whole Trinity. Um, the Father, Son, and Spirit make the incarnation happen, even though it's the incarnation only of the Son. So Martin Luther um, uses that kind of a homey analogy for this. He says, if two girls help a third girl put on a coat, all three of them are putting the coat on her, but only one of them is having the coat put on her, putting on the coat in another sense. Um, So that's that kind of uh, threeness and oneness um, right, the full God is behind any of these saving acts, and yet within it, there's um, um, there's a particular uh, termination, right, or a focus on one person doing it. Mm-hmm. Same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the the proper agent of indwelling in the redeemed, um, and yet when the Holy Spirit indwells, Father, Son, and Spirit are there in that indwelling. Yeah, and so they're 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 doing it together, like the coat analogy. Yeah. And yet one of them takes on, one of them is actually wearing the coat as far as the incarnation. The other is, as you said in our last episode, the father is kind of wearing the coat, so to speak, of sending. That's more of his role. Uh, then the spirit comes along and indwells the, the believer. So each of them have sort of a somewhat different function than the other, correct? Yeah, and, and that um, those offices or roles that they carry out towards us in salvation history reflect um, an eternal structure within the being of God. Wow. Maybe the, the best way to say that is with sending. Um, the Father sends the Son 
And um, classical Christian doctrine would say the reason that it's so fitting and appropriate for the Father to send the Son um, is because in the eternal being of God, um, whether there was a creation or not, whether there was an incarnation or not, even if all we were talking about is God, within the eternal life of God, the Father and Son exist together in the unity of the Holy Spirit in such a way that the Son is, well, he's the Son, right? He's, he's from the Father. Now, we wouldn't say that he's eternally sent from the Father because sent would be the wrong word to use in, inside the life of God. Um, and so Christian theologians going all the way back to Augustine and, and earlier, uh, the Nicene Creed, have always said, what do you call that fromness that's eternally in the life of God? So the Nicene Creed would say, well, the second person of the Trinity is God of God, God from God. He's, um, he's light because God is light, but the Son is light of light. Mm. Um, uh, true God from true God. And so there's this fromness, the, the doctrinal name for it is eternal generation or the eternal begetting of the Son. So that yeah. when we celebrate Christmas, the birth of the Son of God in human nature, we recognize, oh, that's not when he started to exist. That's like Christmas is when he began to exist as human among us, right? That's, right. that's, when, he, that's when the human nature was added to the Son of God. Yeah. But behind that, in the eternal life of God, there's an eternal begetting, an eternal sonship, an eternal fromness. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if you could um, put in a couple sentences, the, what each of the th three persons of the Trinity does uh, towards the, the gospel effect on our life. Uh, yeah. So the, the Father sends, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And here I would distinguish between sort of the history of salvation. Okay. Wherein in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son. And then after the Son completed his work, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the Father and the Son sent the Spirit in a new way on the basis of the finished work of Christ. That's the history of salvation. Then on the other hand, there's the experience of salvation, where when I, in my own life, had the encounter with God where salvation came into my life, um, then sort of in a microcosm, uh, the work of the Trinity occurred in my life. And, and there you would see things like, we have the grace of God uh, from the Father as from the eternal fountain, um, from the Son, by way of sort of a purchased treasury sort of made over to us and um, from the spirit by way of direct or immediate indwelling. Mm -hmm. um, no. So it's the same grace, same love, same peace, um, but it's from the father as fountain, uh, from the son as purchased treasury um, and, and from the spirit as immediate effective indwelling. Yeah. Well, that shows how, how thankful and how much gratitude can be in our hearts towards the, this, uh, this this amazing, somewhat un, somewhat uh, ungraspable, that's really not a word I don't think, but uh, unable to grasp this fully, but yet at the same time, uh, just to be so thankful that, you know, that God exists this way, that he could send his son and the son could die on the cross and not and not have God die, as you were talking about earlier, God, didn't, God himself in, in some senses didn't die. Maybe yeah, the father sense, certainly didn't die, yeah. father didn't die, yeah, right. And, um, you know, so that, you know, just there's, there's so much gratitude for that. Um, can you explain to me a little bit more? This will help me a little bit. Um, so the father sent the son, Jesus lived the perfect life. He died on the cross, was resurrected. Um, does he live in me now or just the Holy Spirit? Um, the Holy Spirit indwells me. You talk about that in your book to some degree. Uh, 
help me just a little bit more because because I, I always felt like well Jesus is in me yeah but the Holy Spirit's dwelling in me but is Jesus just with me or yeah yeah um, so I think the the main lines of biblical argument here are that the Holy Spirit is the one we should mainly think of as indwelling right the Father um, and the Son send the Spirit to be as Jonathan Edwards call it um, um, a new principle of activity within us, like, you know, not just, not just God acting on us or acting towards us or being involved in our lives in that way, but actually indwelling us um, as an internal principle. Um, now, because the Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate, when the Spirit indwells me, the Father and the Son are also there. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so they're together, but slightly in some different yeah. roles. Yeah. And, you know, instead of... Um, uh, being too worried about getting this exactly right, it, it, you can think about the cost of getting it wrong. So the, the mistake here would be to be so interested in Jesus and so focused on Jesus that you leave out the Father and the Spirit, right? right? I don't think it's possible to be too Christ-centered, um, but it is possible to be centered on Christ in such a way that you're Father forgetful or Spirit ignoring. Yeah, so uh, just we were we were talking about the, you know God and the gospel there, and how you know, the, the different roles or, or different aspects of God are are, are functioning, and um, you know and how that causes worship and you know, thankfulness in our heart. But I have a couple more, um, and and if these you know you're a professor and you have a lot of students, just picture me as a student, and if I ask a question that's like stupid or like irrelevant, just say like you know it's not worth our time to go into that, but. For a long time, there's been some questions about the Trinity that wrap around in my mind that I've never really had an answer to. So, so I'll just, just rattle them off and see where you want to go with it. Uh, the first one is, so there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then Jesus becomes incarnate in the body. What role does the body of Christ on earth have in the Trinity? Um, does the body of Christ, his mind, his soul, his, his thinking... Does it know kind of what's going on in the Trinity, or is there any kind of separation? Uh, stupid question. Do you want to pass on it, or <laughs> no? It's it's a good question. Um, the the only thing is it changes the subject. It, it it's where the doctrine of the Trinity borders on the doctrine of the incarnation. Okay. Um, and the incarnation is a whole other complex doctrine. Um, but you can kind of connect the dots here by thinking about the categories of person and nature. Um, which are not normal categories for talking about human existence. Like when I think about myself, I think of myself as body and soul. I don't mean, I don't mainly think of myself as person and nature. Right. Um, but it's because when we think about Trinity and incarnation, these, these conceptual tools, the ideas of person and nature become really important. So um, there's one divine nature um, and that exists in three persons. Then when you get to the incarnation, you have to say, well, that's one divine person existing in two natures. And the connection is the person who's incarnate in the incarnation is the second person of the Trinity. Right. And the two natures that that person has are the, the divine nature he's always had in, in common with the Son, with the Father and the Spirit. And then this new nature, which is our nature, human nature. Right. Oh. Um. So once you, once you get that, when you recognize that Jesus is a hypostatic union or a personal union of the eternal divine nature um, and the human nature, which he took on for us in our salvation. Yeah. Um, 
then you can kind of sort those things out, right? And that's how you can recognize, oh, the Trinity didn't change, still three persons, still one nature. The second person of the Trinity has added to himself a human nature uh, yeah. for us and our salvation. Right. So, so when, uh, so when, the, when Jesus died in body, um, his, the second person of the Trinity was still existing in heaven. Uh, he, that part of the Trinity didn't die. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and here's, I mean, this is exciting stuff. I usually put this on a whiteboard and, and um, pretend for a minute that it's math and try to sort of balance the equation. Cause I'm willing to say, I'm willing to say God died on good Friday. Um, you know, Charles Wesley has that hymn, uh, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal died." Um, right. I'm willing to say that kind of thing. But when I say it, I have in mind a set of Trinitarian and incarnational distinctions yeah. that I didn't just make up to get God off the hook. These are my, this is part of my basic Christian confession of who the triune God is and what's happening in the incarnation. So that when I say God dies, or even the Son of God dies, what I mean is there's only one death on the market, right? There's, it's tempting to say, um, just as there is God and there is humanity, then there must be human death and divine death. Right. So yeah, that's kind of how it feels like if you're going to balance the equation, God yeah. and man, God's death, man's death. But then you realize, wait, what would God's death be? But there's no such thing as, like, by definition, God doesn't die. Right. In the sense that there's no divine death that's out there waiting for God to fall into it. What there is, is human death. And so when I say God died, I'm sort of crossing over in this equation and saying, um, God experienced the only death on the market. There's no divine death out there that God's afraid of and chickening out and instead just going for human death. That's, that's, a, that's like dividing by zero. That's just a mistake to even think about divine death. What there is is human death, which the second person of the Trinity in his assumed human nature that he took on truly experienced. Mm. Now, I think that's I think that's beautiful and deep, and it, it solves all the problems. If the first time you ever hear it is, for instance, me explaining just now how God experienced death, it can sound wrong. If like all those distinctions just got in place, it can sound like I said one half of one third of God had a bad weekend. <laughs> right? It sounds like a cop out, <laughs> but if you realize. No, this is what's going on. God eternally exists as three persons. The second person added human nature to himself. Human nature is subject to death. So the son of God, who is fully God, took on that, that death, the only death on the market. Mm, amen. That's good news. Um, the other question uh, that I would like to ask you is, uh, in the existence of the Trinity, you know, we have the separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, uh, my mind's always been curious as to how they communicate. Do they um, do they have like three separate minds and they kind of like, I'm thinking this and you're kind of thinking that a little bit, or do, are they all thinking the same thing together in unison at once? If you think about um, the communication and the fellowship that goes on between the father and the son as, as the father and son love each other, um, to sort of get a handle on it, you have to think about sort of verbal communication, uh, m making sentences, disclosing ideas to each other. So you can think about it in terms of exchanges of sentences, um, but then you have to stop and, and realize, okay, no, that's a, that's a condition of communication 
for finite embodied right. separate people. Um, and so if, if you think, how do I retain that sort of interpersonal communion and openness to each other, um, but subtract from it all the conditions of being finite um, and, and embodied, um, then that's what's going on in God. When I'm teaching this, I sometimes use the expression sort of the eternal Trinitarian correlate of what we see um, in an embodied incarnate way. Okay. Right. So, I mean, here, here's a simple, that's a, that's a lot, it's a mouthful, right? I usually, again, I usually write that on the whiteboard, but um, um, the easiest way I see into it is Christ, the incarnate son of God, prays to the father who sent him, right? We have the prayers of Jesus to his father. Um, if you take a step back and say, does the eternal second person of the Trinity pray to the first person of the Trinity? Like if there were no incarnation, if there were no creation, would the son pray to the father? And I think what you have to say is no prayer is a I think so. Prayer is the creature's relation to God sort of by definition. That's, you know, how do creatures respond to God? How do uh, rational creatures respond to God? They pray. Um, um, what the son does, what the eternal son does is he is always open to the father and in full communion with the father. There'd be, it'd be sort of a misnomer to attach the word prayer to that. But what you can say is, Oh, when the son becomes incarnate and does the human thing by praying to God, that's a fulfillment in our nature of what in his nature would be a perfect love, perfect fellowship. Um, yeah. Mm. yeah. It's a, a perfect's a good word for it, isn't it? That they yeah. really work together well. Um, last question for you is um, we, uh, over the past few months here on our podcast, we've been uh, studying the attributes of God. And uh, mm. being that we have your uh, insight into the Trinity here today, does do does one member of the Trinity, as, as opposed to another, have more or less of certain attributes? Like, is, is the Father more like I'm in charge of power, and the or the you know maybe the Holy Spirit, if you're Pentecostal, the Holy Spirit's in charge of power, and uh, Jesus is in charge of love attribute, or, or is it? Uh, and I and I kind of know the answer. I, I know they don't. Eat, you know, you you take these three, and I'll take these four. But but is it balanced some ways more towards one than the other? Yeah, um, so it's it's not. Um, if you have something that's an actual divine attribute, like you know, power, wisdom, justice, uh, mercy, um, any of the omnis, right? Omniscience, right. Uh, um, omnipotence. Um, those belong to the divine essence, which is like you know God's nature. How how God is God, right? <laughs> that through which God gods is the divine nature, and um, the Father has that nature. The son has that same nature. The spirit has that same nature. So the ancient Christian creed called the Athanasian creed says um, the father is almighty. The son is almighty and the spirit is almighty, but there are not three almighties. There is one almighty. Mm. Um, so that's the situation with any actual divine attribute. Um, to say that a person of the Trinity doesn't have it is to deny that they are God. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah so, but there is this, other Christian doctrine, which the tradition has labeled appropriation, which is to say, we don't want to say that being the creator is like proper to the father in a sense that it excludes the son and the spirit. But we do want to say that being the creator, 
we can appropriate it to the father because it shows us something about the character of the father. Um, since the father is the one, the person from whom the son and the spirit are, then it kind of makes sense or, you know, it rhymes or it goes with, um, it fits. Um, it's appropriate to talk about God the father as the maker of heaven and earth as we do in the creed or as a number of Bible verses do, right? Mm-hmm. The theologians would label that what's going on there is appropriation. We're not excluding any person of the Trinity from that attribute or even that action of creation. Um, but we are recognizing that to appropriate it to the father shows us something in particular about the father. Wow. You could, for instance, appropriate mercy to the son. Oh, I think this is happening in second Corinthians 13, 14. Um, now the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Um, it's not that the Son has grace and the Father has love and the Spirit has fellowship. Right. Um, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit have grace. Father, Son, and Spirit have love. Father, Son, and Spirit have fellowship um, that they bless us with. Um, but, but Paul's leading us there in an appropriation to say that um, it teaches us something about the Son to appropriate grace to him while not excluding the Father and the Spirit from it. And by the way, since I'm in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, um, it's fascinating that it, we appropriate in Scripture love to the Father. I, I think this is a powerful um, uh, insight of Trinitarian theology. Um, it's tempting when we start, if we just let ourselves appropriate whatever we freely associate with a person of the Trinity and we're not guided by Scripture, you might appropriate to the Father like law or justice or strictness or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, a simple Bible study, like the Puritan John Owen does a simple little 30-page Bible study where he just says, let's look at everywhere the Father's talked about in the New Testament. What's appropriated to him are two things, love and election, right? It's the Father who chooses us. There's only a few places where any other person of the Trinity has said to choose us. Um, but, but love's the one that I think is usually a real breakthrough for my students where I say, if you're coming to the Bible and saying, when I think of the father, I think of authority and power. And I think of like justice. Um, what I have to say to them as gently as possible is, well, when you do that, you're thinking more from your own autobiography or cultural background than you are from the Bible because the Bible itself overwhelmingly, when it singles out God the Father and gives us attributes to appropriate to him to really get a glimpse of his character. It, it goes with love. Mm. Right? John 3, 16, God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his son. Second Corinthians 13, 14. It's the grace of Jesus Christ and it's the love of God, yeah. the Father. Yeah. Man. That's uh, deep and profound and yet it's clear too. Um, I like that about your teaching, Fred. It's uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's stretching me and challenging me, but yet it's it's kind of coming clear to my heart. You've you've uh, cut up some good things for me, and I think that'll be the same for those who are listening to us today. I'm so grateful, man, that you you took the time. Uh, a little shout out to my son Evan Wilkerson for uh, making the connection there, and he loved your class, and uh, and uh, I've loved our our time here together today. So, uh, grateful. One one more time, just encourage you to get. Uh, Fred's book, uh, The Deep Things of God. When did you write this, Fred? Has it been out for a little while it's, now? Yeah, 2010. So it's out in the second edition now that's got like a study guide. and, wow. and uh, so Are you writing anything new now or you got something on, in the works? Yeah, I'm writing another book for Crossway, a short book, um, uh, The Holy Spirit, An Introduction. 
Beautiful. Thank yeah. you, my friend. Appreciate it. The Gary Wilkerson Podcast is brought to you by World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting.